Podcast episode 307. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And man, I finally seem to have kicked this cold that has been going through me. Thanks to my kids for bringing it home. It's been a lot of fun just with the runny nose and the sore throat and all that. It's just been phenomenal. Thanks a lot, kids. But thank God it's over. Managed to work out this morning. Feeling great. One of the reasons I'm feeling great is my guest on episode 307 is Zach Eastman. Zach Eastman is a good buddy of mine. I have done his show, the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, and I had one of the best times I've ever had while podcasting on that show. Why? Because we spent three and a half hours or so talking about W.C. Fields, talking about all the ways W.C. Fields movies and bits and persona have influenced the culture today, and basically just doing a deep dive with a fellow dork about old movies. I love that. That is phenomenal. I remember when Zach and I met and we started talking about old radio bits and I talk about that in this week's episode and I go, man, finally, someone who speaks English here, someone who actually knows who Bob and Ray are, someone who has an appreciation for Don Amici in the Bickersons. And on this week's show, we talk about some of that. How did he get into old Hollywood? What was the trigger for him to want to go back and revisit Hollywood of yore? We also talk about his work as a filmmaker. That's right. Zach not only loves movies and consumes them, he makes them. So in the companion blog piece, you'll find a link to his short film, Leather Brown, which is excellent, by the way. Watched it a couple of times in prep for this interview. Adored it. Thought it was terrific. Also, shout out to Risa Scott, who is a former guest on this show. And in a super resonant part of this episode, Zach also talks me through his journey to sobriety. Now, that's a big deal. And I'm super proud of him for what he's accomplished here. And I'm also incredibly grateful that he's willing to share the story in a forum this public. Now, granted, he posts about it. It's not like he's super private about it. If you're friends with him on social media, he'll talk about how many days sober, how much weight he's lost, etc. But doing it on the record here, I think, is incredibly valuable for anyone considering that or anyone going through the journey or anyone struggling with it. It's helpful to hear other people who have taken that leap and are thriving. And Zach says, you know, there are good days, there are bad days, there are easier days, there are tougher days. That's true of anything. But hearing that you can do it, put one foot in front of the other time and time again, super valuable, awesome. Now, a couple of notes before we get going. One, we go a little bit long here. Look, that's just the price of doing business when you're going to listen to me and Zach talk. Because we have this shared vocabulary. We go on, it's like three minutes where we're just talking about the opening scene from Inglorious Bastards. Because we both love Quentin Tarantino. So one... It goes a little bit long. Two, he has a ton of links that he gives at the end of this episode. So be sure to check out all of his work. You can find that on the companion blog piece that's on johnofalltrades.us, or you can find it in the show notes no matter what platform you're listening on, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Audible, Amazon, or any of a billion others that are out there, some of which I don't even know how my show got there, but they're there. That's terrific. So when you're checking out the show notes... Go to my page, give me a rating, give me a review, hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes will come directly to you. And those things help the visibility of the John of All Trades podcast. 
Now, enough talk because we got a long and great episode in front of us. My guest is Zach Eastman. He of the Real Nerds podcast, of the Shamley Silhouette, of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, and of short films that he has either written, directed, or both. We talk about all of it here on the show. Episode 307 with Zach Eastman starts right now. I didn't intend to do solo episodes of Ballyhoo, um, but certain opportunities came up where I was just like, if I don't try this, I'm going to regret it. And I've been surprised at the reception on some of them. So, but it hasn't been often. The Benny one was, we're at episode 39. If I don't do this, I will literally regret it. So that's, that was put together in the span of a week and a half. So it yeah. was not uh, pre-planned. <laughs> the solo episodes rarely are. Uh, yeah, it's it's usually as a result of something falling through or something else happening. You have some sort of external force en- enacted upon you that forces you to pivot quickly. Yeah. And so when I realized I could just turn the mic on and I, I don't want to do it often because I don't want to turn into like fucking Joe Rogan or, you know, one of these other. Nobody like, wants to do that. <laughs> some do. <laughs> but, you know, like, I you know, I don't want to turn into some just odious hot taker. But right. occasionally clearing the decks is going to be really, really helpful. And and people tend to respond to it. I want the focus to be on my guests. But, you know, from time to time, you just got to get it out there. And people, I think, appreciate the candor. Oh, yeah. I think I think they appreciate knowing who you are as a person because it's one thing to, you know, we're, we're spoiled in, in a sense by the amount of it we have now. But think about Johnny Carson or Jack Parr or... Well, I guess you can't really do Steve Allen because Steve Allen wrote 500 books, 500 ways to Sunday. <laughs> but a lot of those guys were rather closed off for the most part. Oh, like dude, Carson was very closed off. Dude, Johnny Carson was almost unknowable in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until later that you heard about him and you're like, wow, that guy was kind of a dick. Yeah, he's a dick. It's also like um, it's hard to rewatch this documentary because Kevin Spacey's narrating it. Oh no. <laughs> but um the the, the PB the PBS doc on uh Carson is amazing because it does it doesn't shy away from his bullshit, but you do understand or get a gauge on what it's like to be put in the position he was put in. To to take off as little time as he did. Yeah. Like to be that oriented on your job, like it's a lesson. It's a teaching tool. It's a lesson for anybody who's ambitious in that game. That's why I'm secretly glad that Conan's never had to like run the tonight show that same way and yeah. got his own path. Cause it gives him a room for balance, you know? <laughs> like No, I, I agree. And so, so this is Zach Eastman and you are the creator of the yesteryear Ballyhoo review. Also mm-hmm. the Shamley silhouette. You are also a contributing member of real nerds. Uh, you are a short film director, uh, and, and do you have features under your belt yet? No, not yet. Okay, let's I, hope. <laughs> I, I, I know that's in the design of things. Oh, and yeah. you are someone with whom, and just about the only person in my life outside of my own father, where I can start talking about old Hollywood, and you, I mean, your your knowledge far exceeds mine, but you're like the only person who can keep up with it. Be- yeah, because um, I am constantly referencing stuff from before I was born, and so when we met, and we immediately just were like blah 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 blah, blah like right at each <laughs> other about like old radio and like 
the Bickersons and shit, you know, like stuff that people yeah. don't and like old Bob and Ray bits. Yeah, uh, it's 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 kind of amazing to think that we're in a smaller group than uh, most. But then when you realize how many people out there do share those same interests, like it's, it's kind of yeah. like the one best attribute about the Internet is that it ha- has helped connect <laughs> people with those similar interests. But like when I first met you, even we were at a we were at a trivia night with Brad. Yeah. And uh, my first connecting tissue with you was learning about your enthusiasm for Ocean Avenue. Which is... <laughs> <laughs> by yellow card yeah by yellow card yeah, <laughs> and yeah. i was just like i've just never seen anybody as enthusiastic about that song <laughs> that and karate kid part three. Oh, which, jesus uh... <laughs> christ yes um okay so funny story about ocean avenue that whole album is one of the things i wrote my master's thesis about really no shit so like I, I don't listen to that album much anymore. Like Ocean Avenue will come on occasionally. It was their big hit off that album, the, the self-titled track. Uh, but generally, like, I don't listen to that album a whole lot. I used it and a, an album called Siren Song of the Counterculture by a band called Rise Against. And I, I was making an argument about how two things that are ostensibly called punk can call two almost entirely separate audiences into being. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was an interesting kind of thought experiment and I used something that I love, which was punk rock at the, at the time. And I still love it to, to do that. So my affection for ocean Avenue now is a little bit different than just being like a fanboy about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. It comes with a deeper appreciation in that respect. Right, right, right. I want to say we had at least intersected a couple of times before that, but you like, you were in a much different state years ago mm-hmm. when I had met you. Then, then, you mean fucked up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I mean, I didn't know that at the time, but I mean, since then, I remember seeing you one time. We were at a thing together, and you were like walking with a cane and everything. Um, mm, yeah, that's when I had uh, injured my foot at work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, um, I fractured my foot because I worked for, um, I worked for a place that had me in a furniture department. I um, was very heavy at the time. I was at, at 290 to 300. Like it, it wow. fluctuated. Big boy. A lot of that it was, you know, due to the drinking of uh, beer and very crappy food. And um, I was maneuvering something to price it and I tripped and I pushed down on my left foot so hard that I heard a snap on the left side. Oh. And so I, you know, stumbled over and I was kicking and screaming, going like, get me a fucking doctor. <laughs> and um, he took me to the doctor and they had me put on a boot for uh, a couple months while still going to PT and getting x-rays done before they finally said like, yeah, it's a fracture. And, you know, it's it's since it was work related, it was paid, but they wanted to make sure there was absolutely something that was going to get done before they did anything with it. And uh, since, I mean, like, to me, like it was frustrating because it, it was one of those first things that made me realize I was not in a good state in my life. Oh, uh, okay. Um, how lo- how it, long ago was this? Uh, this was 2017 when I, when okay. I fractured it in 2018 was when the, when I around 27, the end of 2017, I had a surgery to fix it. And then I began a recovery period in the beginning of 2018. So like for four weeks I was, you know, um, I was, allowed minimal movement like absolute minimal movement and then i started working on my foot again around that same time when i was in pt they had me on a treadmill to to practice walking on my foot again and that kind of instilled something in me to try out a gym because i looked at my weight i looked at where i was 
And before I stopped drinking, I did start working out. So I would go to the gym that was nearest my work before a shift or after a shift and just walk or jog on the treadmill or the elliptical. And since I'm a radio nut, as you said, and a podcast nut, I would just listen to what I wanted to listen to. I don't really do music on um, uh, during workouts, at least at that point. Sometimes I do now. But I was doing it then, and it just slowly but surely became a habit for me. <laughs> oh, nice. All right. I, I'm curious. So let's jump right into it. Yeah, when I met you, you, I mean, we've always had a vocabulary for film. We've always had a vocabulary for old pop culture. We clearly both love it. And, I mean, you mentioned in – I read an interview you did, I want to say with Emerging Filmmakers Project, that you said you kind of grew up alone. And in in a lot of ways, I mean, I'm an only child. I don't have any brothers and sisters. But a a lot of times my parents, I mean, it was the 80s. So, I mean, things were just different. Right. My parents would kind of leave me to my own devices. And that's how I discovered a lot of this pop culture and would rewatch tons of it over and over again. But I'm interested in your story, too, because we have such a similar sensibility in a lot of ways. I'm curious about the origin for you. So I, I do have a sister. She's three years younger than me, but... When I say alone, my meaning is, is that like, I've never felt accepted by others around me for all the goodwill that I've received in recent years. Like there's a, there's a long time in my life where I was feeling very, very different. And uh, with that came a lot of fear and a lot of pushback. The entertainment solitude uh, or the entertainment that I found in that solitude was very essential to me feeling like I had friends. Uh. Um, I think it, I mean, like Star Wars kicked off the fascination with film as it does for most. I think a lot of it had to do with like, you can do that on a screen. Like, holy crap, that's amazing. (laughs) Over time, like just the more I was watching stuff, the just the more enamored I became with it. But it wasn't until my grandfather introduced me to two key things that the obsession with the medium of entertainment in general took over. And the first one was when I was 10, I was at in California. This was actually in September of 2001. And I think we were a week or so off before uh, 9-11. So it was a different time then, boys and girls. And um, I was there visiting them on a on my first solo trip away from home, like without the parents, you know, it makes you feel like a big man. And um, I'm with my grandparents and they took me to Legoland, um, which is a far cry from their house. So it was a good drive. Yeah, that's we down stopped. in like North County, San Diego. Like that's yeah, that that's like um, uh, almost by Encinitas. What is that town uh, that it's in? Um, I can't, Carlsbad. Uh, it's like Carlsbad. Yeah. yeah, it's right by the Carlsbad outlets. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, they lived in Julian, California. So oh, Jesus, we, okay. <laughs> yeah, so they're taking a good drive up there to take me to Legoland. And, you know, you get to see the Darth Vader thing. You get to ride on the Dragon Roller Coaster. And uh, I bought a uh, uh, Martian Lego set there that nice. day um, when they were doing the Mars kick there. And we went to a family friend's house, like one of their friends, and they went to go socialize. And I saw some videotapes. And I started perusing them and there was a lot of films that I wasn't fully familiar with. And the two tapes that I had picked out to watch in the guest room while I played with my Legos, I saw two tapes there. One was Fiddler on the Roof, which was a two tape set. Yeah. And the other was Casablanca. And I picked Casablanca because I figured, well, it's the shorter one, so I'll be able to watch it all. <laughs> Ended up not being the case. But what I did was I put the tape in and the way that VHS was set up, it had the the making of featurette before the movie. And so oh, wow. when I was playing with Legos and watching it, I was learning about the making of Casablanca and getting all the spoilers before ever watching the movie. <laughs> 
thankfully I didn't retain all the story elements. I just retained some of the stories and watching these people be interviewed and talking about why it's a classic. And when we were driving home, I asked my grandfather, can we find Casablanca and watch it? <laughs> he said, yes. So we went to the library of Julian where actually he, he was instrumental in helping build that library in that town. He, my, fa- my grandfather was an amazing man. He was, he was very heavily involved in the Julian community. He was a Harvard professor he taught uh, college, he taught history. He was a huge influence that the fact that he exposed me to this stuff makes a lot of sense years down the line is that he was enamored with history and this technically is history. So we watched Casablanca in the living room on a VHS tape on this, like, it was an older television. They had not really upgraded. So it was still like a Zenith, like, and it had like the tubes on the side and whatnot. So was it, was like it the- like when TV was furniture? Yes, uh, yes, very much so. Like, it still felt like furniture. We we had one in in college. It was in our living room, and it was like it was like a piece of furniture. It had like wood, you know, around it, and so like and and you could move it. It had wheels and stuff. It was weird. I'm yeah, thinking about it we, now. Down here where I live, um, at my folks' house, I have the um, the Mitsubishi TV that we still had from when we were kids, which is a s- solid piece of actual furniture that weighs more than an elephant. And, <laughs> It sits there. It's now very much just a side rest for, you know, a glass of water or <laughs> any right, uh, right. anything else that I have near my uh, 4K TV. So, yeah, it's it's a massive thing. This one is smaller. I watched the film. I was enamored with it. It's become part of my lifeblood. And then the other thing he did was when he came to visit us around that same time, we went to Cracker Barrel up in um, up near Thornton. And I was looking in the, you know, store. Cracker Barrel used to have a better store before it became all jingoistic. <laughs> it, it used to be just about comforting quilts and candy. Right, right. Uh, the uh, But they had a rack of tapes there. And I saw one that said Sherlock Holmes. And I was interested in Sherlock Holmes at that point. So my grandfather bought me the tape. I listened to it on the tape. And I thought it was going to be an audio book, like Charles Corral reading Winnie the Pooh. And instead... It was actors, commercials, performance. Like, this doesn't make any sense. What is this? And my grandfather explained to me, that's old-time radio. And I'm like, oh, wow, there's more of this. So I wore out that tape. And around the same time, I got, um, I was shown Fun and Fancy Free, the Disney package feature with Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Oh, Jesus. Okay, yep. Yep, and in the featurette, Leonard Maltin, the great Leonard Maltin, talks about how Edgar Bergen was a radio star. And you, your first question is, how did a ventriloquist work on the radio? <laughs> so I found tapes of those, and my parents bought me sets of tapes, and I listened to them, and they got, it, it just, it got its hooks in me. The comedy really got its hooks in me. Yeah. I still love detective stories and the shadow and stuff, but old-time radio comedy, like, dug a claw into my back and said you're coming with us you know (laughs) well dude i there's something i always talk about this when it comes to podcasting and this is one reason i've never done video podcasting is because the visual robs you of your own imagination Mm -hmm. and when it comes to comedy this is also true in horror which i think is why so many comedians make such great like horror directors like jordan peele for instance Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the rhythms are the same. Like the, the architecture of a joke is almost the same as the architecture of a scare. Yeah. I think about this in particular with like Halloween, right? We don't yeah. know why Michael Myers is such an evil little kid, right? But whatever that story is, our brain can make up something that is just awful without the, the filmmaker telling us. 
Yeah, it's so, it's, uh, it's an ominous thing. Carpenter's really good at right. The, the brilliance of that first film is that he's not he's not giving you a definable reason. He is encompassing it in evil itself. Right. And it's my favorite horror movie of all time. I love how he creates a mood of dread with Michael being the shape. Michael Michael is the person Loomis is after, but the shape is the one that's committing the crimes. And so yeah. there's a duality that you can lay into it. It's you're right. You're right to bring that up. It's, so it, and, and to that yeah. point, man, that's why I wanted to bring up Rob Zombie's take on Halloween. We're like, we're introduced to Michael Myers as a baby left in a dumpster and you go, well, fuck, man. Okay. Like, <laughs> like we get it now. All right. Like you just removed a huge component of mood here. Yeah. I will be controversial here. I don't hate his take on Halloween. Uh, it's not, I, it's not for me. I'll put it that way. Yeah. That's fair. I learned to separate myself from it. It's his version of that mythos with his style intact because the, his, his interest is towards the sympathy for the monster. And so when when I look at it from that lens, I can appreciate it as its own thing. But if I'm encompassing it in the whole of Halloween, I'm like, nah, 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 nah. Yeah, yeah. If you put it in can't, like, okay, so make a different fucking story, man. Like, seriously. I think yeah. he wanted to. That's the impression that I get. Oh, I interesting. I feel like he... It's. I mean, he was even asking John Carpenter for permission because he's just like, if I don't get his permission, I'm not doing it. And then when he gives him the, when Carpenter's just like, make it your own and whatnot, that's when he goes off on that. He didn't even really want to do the sequel, from all indication. Right. Okay. And uh, the Weinstein's were apparently very instrumental in making that happen and also making his life a living hell on the set of the second one. Like, oh, good, the Weinstein's. Um. Yeah, terrible people. <laughs> yeah, just just awful. So it, it's funny, um, you were introduced to this by your grandfather. I was introduced to primarily, so I would just be driving in the car with my dad and he had all these cassettes of like Bob and Ray and the Bickersons and, uh, there's, there's one I'm missing and I can't remember which one it is, but you combine that with him getting into WC Fields, which mm-hmm. is how we did our show together. We did It's a Gift together on, uh, Yesterday Your Ballyhoo Review, which was so much fun. Yeah, it was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, I liked putting that episode together because I got to. I wasn't sure how many people were fully aware of WC Field beyond the classic film community, and so I was like, "Well, I've got to find a radio show to play at the top to kind of like give you an indication of his humor beyond just it's a gift." Because as we talked about, he has two different modes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that was a lot of fun one to put together. A lot of love went into that one. It's amazing too, and I, I'm curious about your take on this, like. I, and I don't know what this is, but when you give a kid something that old, I don't know why I still grabbed onto it in the way that I did. For you, I, what, why do you think it got its hooks in you in that way? Because it seems to inform a lot of the way you interact with the world, the way you create your art. I mean, I, I watched the film Leather Brown recently, a short film that you did, yeah. and I, I could see just the feel of that movie with the longer takes – and with some of the camera choices, which we can get into here in a bit, um, reminded me of, ho- of, of choices that you don't see necessarily in filmmaking today. So, so what is it about that time period and, and digging into Hollywood of yore that grabs you? It's a good question. From the comedy end of things, I'll, I'll address that part first because it's the one that I use for relaxation the most. Um, <laughs> I feel like there is something about the merriment that can be found in those older comedies, both film and radio, that 
feels unique. It doesn't fully feel manufactured. Um, something about it feels off the cuff on radio, especially. It's for me, it's the difference between this and 70s television and 70s comedy specifically, where everything feels a little too manufactured. The exception being maybe the works of Norman Lear. Right. Um, of course. Like that, that feels much more organic, even though the writing is indicating for the laugh machine, et cetera. You know, radio was a new medium at that point, And so everything was still being tested on the waterfront. And my favorite is Jack Benny. And when you listen to one of Jack's programs, even as everything is perfectly planned out by Jack and his technique and style, something will go wrong. And you're listening to them roll with it. That's a type of joy that comes from that that I don't think you get anywhere else. It's the similar to the Marx Brothers with film. Like, yeah. everything's perfectly executed from a plan, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels effortless. It feels fun. Well, it, it feels like the rules are being broken. <laughs> right. There's like an antic sensibility about it. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like they're, they're capturing this chaos, which again, scripted, manufactured, fully like going as planned, but it, it doesn't feel like you're watching that. That's an interesting point. And, yeah. and I want to bring this up and see what your take is on this. It reminds me of something, believe it or not, of all people Seth MacFarlane said who loves like just old like Broadway musicals and that's why Family Guy has a full orchestra uh which uses that orchestra in I would say a way that's really underrated particularly as it pertains to modern cartoons but he said you watch someone like Fred Astaire who is doing the most elaborate dance moves you've ever seen and he looks like he's doing it effortlessly he's having a great time there he's just it's it's like he's just sort of doing it off the cuff right just being like oh hey here's a little ditty i'm doing with my feet and isn't this fun and he goes and you compare that against watching like some scripted giant stadium show featuring christina aguilera where she's like shouting at the audience and sweating at the end it looks like she's going to take a shit on stage and it doesn't look fun at all. It looks like this brutal industrial work she's doing. Right. And so to that end, when, when you talked about, you know, pointing the camera or doing these old radio shows, Jack Benny, it's sounding so effortless. It, you, you don't see the scaffolding supporting all of this. Is that a fair way of saying it? I agree. You, there are some comedians from the era where you do. Of course. Uh, I, I tend to look at, oddly enough, when you put Mel Blanc into the box that he had for the Mel Blanc show, it, it almost like it was, it felt immediately contrived. But if you put Mel in Jack's universe, it becomes free floating chaos. So like there are sometimes it depends on the circumstance, but I would agree that because these guys had hundreds of hours of training in vaudeville. Yeah. Because they had hundreds of hours of training on film. These guys, it was their job. Like, their motivation isn't fame. Their motivation is food. Like, that, that when they're starting up in vaudeville, their motivation's hungry. <laughs> right. And when you've got that, it's, it's that thousand hours mentality. You know, right. a thousand hours to get perfect at something. And I think that when you have, when you get to listen to the examples of it, it feels so well-timed and whatnot because the performers at, at hand intuitively know how the structure is going to play out like jack was very very heavy heavily involved with the writing of his scripts not as a writer but as an editor so he had his teams of writers whether they were marrow and Boulogne or balls or tackerberry josephsburg and perrin he would work closely with them 
usually they'd split off into teams of two for the week, one during one half, one during the other half of the 30-minute program. they get it all to Jack, and Jack would go down, and he would knock out what was not needed, tighten things down, engage in the timing, and he intuitively knew from those thousand hours and his experience on early radio where they're kind of just trying to figure out what the Jack Benny character is, he starts to learn how whole, how long can he hold? How long can he make that room silent? Yeah. Which on radio is a risk. Sometimes when you don't hear anything on radio, it's the most effective part of radio. Oh, yeah. Um, the dramatic example of that is War of the Worlds, where you are, he's, Orson Welles is literally playing with silence for big chunks of that War of the Worlds broadcast. And I think the two fall in tandem. And I think it, a lot of it has to do with that timing and that precision that makes it feel so effortless because it feels like in a lot of ways, it just feels like you're involved in the world because of that preparation and timing. And when you don't have, when you have too much of a free floating improv nature, like Fred Allen does, it's funny, but it, it lacks a charm that others possess. Yeah. It, like uh, it, it, Burns and Allen is a good example of, of what works. Like they knew that dynamic left and right where they could throw any dialogue at Burns and Allen and they just knew how to play it. You're, you're absolutely right. It, it reminds me of when, when there's not enough structure, it's like a Judd Apatow movie, which has moments mm-hmm. of absolute brilliance, but the movie becomes too shaggy and you're, you're begging for it to end by, by the end of it. You're going, Jesus Christ, like how much of this can I take? And it's you, all about balance. <laughs> right. And you compare that against something like the show Community. And I remember reading an interview with one of the writers who worked with Dan Harmon. And what Dan Harmon had was it was almost like a generic script template that he would develop. And so like he, they, they would map out the story and they would have the basic building blocks. And it would be like uh, Jeff enters the study room here. Britta uh, says something, you know, um, Troy and Abed do this. And that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like Chevy Chase will drop some exposition here. Abed says, I have a joke here. And mm-hmm. then they like, so they had the, the basic skeleton of it and then they could slot in with different jokes and things. But yeah. he, he knew how to pace a scene brilliantly. So, I mean, I, I haven't watched Rick and Morty. Uh, that's just, I, <laughs> I have a hard time getting it's over. over. It's, it's overwhelming. <laughs> I, I have a hard time dealing with the fans of that too, in the same way that I have a hard time getting into Dave Matthews Band. Because <laughs> if, if you tell someone that you that you know, it's like, oh, I started listening to Dave Matthews Band, and they're a Dave Matthews Band fan. You're like, here's your next forty five fucking minutes. <clears throat> and so, to that end, I think what you're saying is interesting. Yeah, it's that Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours thing, where mm. once you know that, once you're in that space long enough, you can then you, like. I mean, I, and I don't want to say it's this easy, but you can swap out the jokes with pretty much anything and nail it because you know your form so well. Which is actually, you know, that's ended up dictating how I've wanted to present stuff on film. Because you asked that yeah. question, it all kind of ties into it. Because the more the more I watched and the more I was expanding my horizons beyond contemporary cinema something I noticed about the things that I love from films today are when films are reaching back to the past. And a lot of that has to do with shot composition and how long they hold Mm. on a scene. Like I grew enamored with Paul Thomas Anderson after watching there will be blood and watching how he held on a wide or a medium. Yeah. He wasn't going, he wasn't using the convenience of a close up. He's holding on the shot and allowing the actors in the frame, which is very much, something that they would do in the old studio system. Like not a, 
the editing isn't at the same pace as what we see today. So they don't have quick action cut. You're sitting in a scene. You'll sit in, in Treasure of the Sierra Madre, you'll sit in Humphrey Bogart's performance. You'll sit on Walter Houston doing his dance for without cutting away to the reaction right away. Houston only cuts away to when he needs it. And I think that patience is a key thing within all of this. And I'll tie it into this. A lot of why I have tried to do what I do with holding on stuff, I've gotten slowly better at it. I used to be a slave to, you know, quicker cutting. I'm enamored by dialogue and actors. I would love to make an action movie or a, you know, or a fun, like, something with kinetic energy and speed to it. Mm -hmm. But I always find that the tension that can come from a scene of dialogue more exhilarating sometimes than an explosion or uh, a a gunfight or, you know, or even a, even a knife fight. I've got Quentin Tarantino rosy colored glasses Mm. first, like, like unquestionably, even as his films have had contention over recent years, I'm still enamored by him because God damn it, that man can write a scene so compelling that you don't need physicality. You need that performance. And he knows with his editors, whether it was Mankey or if it's Raskin now, how to cut that and create tension out of a scene of dialogue. And I've always found that more exhilarating. Like, so when I did, you talked about Leather Brown and how things are drawn out. Hold on, hold on a second before you yeah, do that. Sure. Yeah. In terms of Tarantino... We got to talk about uh, the way I heard it described was he builds tension out of seemingly innocuous dialogue. Yep. Which is yep. remarkable because the whole opening scene of Inglorious Bastards is probably one of the best scenes in the history of cinema. Yeah. And, you know, you're watching Christoph Waltz as Hans Landa, you know, on La Padite's farm and mm-hmm. you're going, oh, God, like what? I mean, he's a Nazi, first of all. Like, so the Nazi crew rolls up on this French farmer and you go, well, this isn't good, but he's so polite and so almost deferential to this French farmer. And you're going, why? He knows. He already knows. Yeah. He already knows the answer to his question. He's having a, he's a, he described him as like a, is like this Sherlock Holmes for, for the Nazis. And it's evidenced by his confidence. Like that's, that's what he's doing as he's drawing out that conversation, switching it to English, switching it back to French. One of the, one of the most tensest moments in that scene for me is when he goes like, I'm going to switch back to German now. Yeah. And then he goes, Michel Lapadite, and he goes on his little spiel. And oh, yeah. as the soldiers come in as he's still doing his thing. And then they, they rattle their guns oh, off yeah. at the floor. It's, God, it's, oh, God, it's great. It's it's um, phenomenal. It's excruciating. When I watched the first time, I remember going, holy shit. Uh, mm-hmm. th- this is, th- this is otherworldly to me. So I'm totally with you. It, my favorite film of, um, all time is his third film, Jackie Brown. <laughs> I love that movie. And the scene where he starts it off with Ordell going to kill Jackie. Um, where they play Tennessee stud to kick it off and yeah, we- Navarro's camera work, taking him inside and it's within the dark and you have him talking to Jackie and it's a small, small moment where you, where you are led to believe that he's going to give the upper hand. And then you just hear one sound effect. 
the click. click. Yep. Yep. And he goes, what do you, what, is that what I think it is? What do you think it is? I think it's a gun. Pressed, pressed up against, against my, my dick. dick. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's when we were able to bring up the scene and you see Pam Greer turn on the light and you see, and she just like waves that gun in his face. Like the scene moves in an entirely different direction based off of the dialogue not seeing anything and also what our expectation was in the buildup. It would be different if we saw it from Jackie's perspective yeah. as he comes in, it would, it, the, the, the scene wouldn't work. Um, so yeah, he is one of those motivating factors, but he also knows when to like hold on a performer, not saying anything, um, how to play with a look. Dude, the, the, the whole time Bruce Willis is getting talked to by Ving Rhames in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Right, like, because uh, he's barely moving, and you realize later he's playing poker, but he's also seething. You ever realize when you're feeling like you're you're being owned by somebody else? They were watching that unfold for Willis. Like, his facial movement never shifts, but you can tell that there's bruising going on. Like, it's it's a verbal fight, mm -hmm. or a, a verbal beat-up. He's getting beat the fuck up verbally, and... It's it's excruciating in a lot of risk. Bruce Willis, yes, understands that Marcellus thinks he's doing Bruce Willis a favor. Yeah. And and so he's just he's quietly boiling underneath that, which is always amazing to me. But yeah, we, he's we, resisting. We we gotta get back to Leather Brown because you and yes. I could talk pop culture and we'll turn it into a yesteryear episode and I don't have no, time absolutely. for that this afternoon. But uh <laughs> <laughs> um But you don't want a five hour epic? <laughs> uh I very much do but logistically, I can't make that happen. That's fair. So um, let's get back to Leather Brown, which, yeah, when I watched it, uh, I didn't know exactly where it was going. Um, and, mm. I, and I know that's by design because I intentionally didn't read much about it because I know mm. Risa. Um, I don't know Hayden. but uh, I, Hayden's wonderful. I was Great immediately guy. sort of captivated by him when I watched it. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, and I realized why at the end, but I'm interested in your take on this. Hayden's composition in his shot, when, when you go to a close up on him, he is much closer to the front of the frame than usual. Mm. And I, I, I think I know why, but talk me through Leather Brown, how that came to you. Um, and then if, if you want to build up to some specific choices, I'd be interested in hearing about it. Right. So the story of Leather Brown came out of me beginning to collaborate with Reese and Hayden. Um, Prior to that, I had, you know, I'd gone to film school and I'd made films of my own. Um, I'd made a black and white film prior about the death of old time radio. And I made a, another short film regarding the aftermath of a school shooting. But, you know, when you're in adulthood and you're outside of the film school motif, you start trying to rebuild who you are as a filmmaker, I think. And a lot of that had to do with my own sobriety journey. But I started working with them. They brought me a script called Heavy Hangs the Sky, which we were all set to try to get ready to shoot. And then the pandemic happened. And the problem with Heavy Hangs the Sky in that regard was that it had a lot of locations. We had scenes of an intimate nature that required close contact. And so we found a way to possibly do it safe. But the question was going to be, how do we get people who were comfortable getting on set and we read the room. We realized that the numbers weren't there to make everybody feel comfortable, no matter how many precautions we put up. And I advocate for safety first. And so if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And so when we were in the middle of our, you know, post defeat, uh, quote unquote, Hayden and Risa were, and I were kicking stuff around and they were like, maybe he would like leather brown. 
And Hayden was like, yeah, maybe he'll like Leather Brown. I'm like, what the heck's a Leather Brown? And um, they sent me the script for it. And Leather Brown, it's a story about a couple breaking up, like the last remains of their relationship dissolving in front of them with, you know, going to reclaim your items. I saw something in there about heartbreak and letting go and a sense of maturity that I myself have tried to wrestle with in my own ways, but I had not been able to really do it through film. And so I agreed to do it. We found a safe way to do it really by the composition of the framing is both a lovely thing that Jamin Talbert, the DP, helped design with me, but it's also out of necessity because we wanted as little scenes with Reese and Hayden in close proximity as possible to maintain standards. So the only real time we had them in close frames with each other were outside the door and the two opposite couches talking to each other. And then we move in for their coverage. And I asked for them on their comfort level, like if you want to be off camera in vicinity to feed off of the actor, I would love you to, but I'm not going to ask you to do that. I want you to I want you to do what's comfortable for you. Through all of that, we maintained our safe distance and our safety while pulling that off. But that distance and that framing in particular, all I did was communicate to Jamin, I want to imply visually that they are apart. I want to imply what we know through the dialogue because it's a dialogue piece. It's very hard to make dialogue dynamic. We're talking about right. Tarantino earlier who knows how to do it, right? Yeah. Um, arguably, Sork, I mean, Sorkin's proven with his recent directorial output that he does know how to do it. He's still learning, though. I think that what I was able to do as a director was communicate to my DP and to my other departments, this is what I'm looking for out of this. And the only other like artistic stroke that I insisted on was I want to shoot this in black and white because I didn't want to prettify their situation. Mm. There is a sense of it feeling more real if I shoot it in black and white. And there was a selfish desire to go back to that territory in a way that I hadn't done before. With a radio movie, it makes sense. You know, sure. you're, you're in the period, you do it that way. Here, we wanted to try it from an honest approach to something and not putting a glossy picture on it. Like, so within all of that, Jamin composed these shots based off of rough storyboards that I designed for every scene. And his innovation on that was having them within the lower left of the frame or the lower right on the frame, depending on the angle. And I feel with Hayden's imagery, the way he was able to be blocked to maintain distance, but also to give him space to move his character naturally is moving closer towards Risa because he's wanting to keep the relationship alive, whereas mm -hmm. Risa is keeping her distance. That's a testament to them. Well, um, dude, two things about that. One, Risa's character has more movement in this. And one thing I noticed in the shot composition was she has a ceiling fan going above her. Mm -hmm. And so your eye is kind of drawn to that and you wonder why. She's the one who shows up to get her stuff and then she's the one who leaves. Yeah. And so there, there's a sense of motion there, which I think is really interesting. And to yeah, me, and when, when you saw Hayden getting closer to the front of the frame, it's a little bit more claustrophobic, but you get the sense he's at the end here. Yeah. Like he's very much at the end. She, you know, she's almost like the wall there where mm -hmm. 
because he has to go and get the coat. I don't want to give away too much of this, but <laughs> like he, he has to go and get the coat. And so you, you can, you get a sense for where each of them are in this process of a breakup by subtle composition. I don't want to call them tricks, but choices. Mm-hmm. Um, these, the, I will tell you the spinning fan was, uh, that was, a, I, I remember that being a situation where we were trying to make sure we stayed cool in there. Because we're sitting in a inside a hot house, the utilization of my house as the set, my big thing was to try to make sure it didn't look as barren and as desolate as I wanted it to have a life of its own. We rearranged um, little ornaments that my mom has around the house around the door. We tried to give it some character, repositioning the furniture entirely, removing a television out of there to create right. the convenient space. That fan ended up working beautifully in the editing room and. A lot of what I try to do is allow the creative teams around me to bring what they want to the table. And from there in the editing room, I can compile together what we've got. As a director, I tend to let my actors and my camera crew be as creative as they want me to be, want to be. And what I do is offer notes where I can, because I've learned that this isn't a, some of my favorite directors fall under the auteur theory, I guess. Yeah. But I feel like that even them would, they would admit like, this is a team effort. This isn't solely like, this isn't the Zach hour. This is about a whole crew of people making a movie. And so Jamin has an intuitive sense of where to put the camera and how to compose it based off of the script we were given. What I offered to him was my impression of the script, how I see things, how I want things to go. And there were a few shots that I was insistent on to a degree. But for the most part, I was allowing him to build the world he wanted to build as the cameraman because DP has a harder job than director by comparison. DP's got to set that up to a scientific precision. And I want to allocate for him the room to be expressive along with that meticulous detail. But there was a shot where I had it storyboarded uh, one way and we found a way to do it better. And it was the scene in the closet. So the the shot of him coming down the hallway, that was as storyboarded. It was, I knew my living room where I'm just like, if you get it from that angle and we pull back on the dolly or even just have him stationary going down the hall, we can get an expressionist kind of thing going. And when he put the frame up, I was like, Oh no, he found it. He knew exactly what I was looking for. But inside the cat, the cupboard, where you or the closet where he opens up to get the jacket. We wanted to get in there. And so what we ended up doing was taking a C stand and putting clothes on it and shooting through the clothes to indicate that we're inside the closet. We never went inside that closet. It's too small a space. Hmm. Um, and that was something that Jamin came up with in order to give us something better. And from there, we're directing Hayden, picking up the jacket, holding it. Okay, cut, put the jacket back up, take the jacket off. And we did three takes of that. And the only time that I get very intense as a director is when I know that they're in a spot and I need to keep them there. And I, within reason and responsibility, and I would go up to Hayden and go like, if you need to stop, you need to tell me to stop. But I would let him know, like, this is how, like, I was doing silent film directing, essentially, to get him to cry a little bit more, knowing when I needed to stop talking so that his sounds could be heard. Yeah. And that's when I'll get intense. Beyond that, I let them make that choice. The beginning and end shots, though, those were not planned. Those I can take partial credit for. The other part goes to Jamin for helping me set it up because we had a whole rig set up to film through the car window of her driving. 
I wanted to do some Jackie Brown type stuff yeah, with her track. Yeah. Sure. yeah. That rig would have taken longer to set up than we would have had sunlight. So what we did instead was I'm like, okay, well, I've, I like the idea of entering a world and then exiting a world. So let's just set up that Dana, Dana dolly that we rented for a bunch of money and get use out of it. So we have that scene pushing in and then pushing out. And the one note that I was insistent upon was, okay, Risa, when you're getting out of the car, I want you to be rolling up the the window. I, I did know that based on how the editing would work, if I had her doing that, I could cut on the sound of that window going up and get us into that opening credit before we cut into the scene. Yeah, that makes sense. So listening to you describe this and yourself as a director... For, it's, so it's not the Zach hour. So first of all, you're not screaming at them like David O. Russell on the set of I Heart Huckabees. No, uh, <laughs> or three or three kings. I'm not asking anybody sure. to bathe in oil. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're not doing like a zillion takes, Michael Mann style. No, uh, no. Um, did you ever hear what Edgar Wright said about the camera? No. He would, he was referring to this when film was of uh, um, was what film and digital were like in the early battle stages. And he's like, even if I can shoot digital, I'm going to run, I'm going to uh, limit my takes because I was brought up on the mentality that that's film, the film is money going through the camera. And so Mm -hmm. I have to get the most out of my money that I can. And so that's why you work with the actors in advance to make sure they're giving you what you want to, what you want to get. Okay. Um, Okay. That makes, that makes good sense because Matt Damon, I heard him on WTF recently and he was talking about the departed. And Jack Nicholson talked about being from the Roger Corman school of, of movie making. Yep. And so like, if I'm not adding anything like to, to time and people's, you know, labor, but if, you know, and he gives an example and I won't tell the whole thing here because it takes forever, but there's an eighth of a page where you basically see him, uh, standing over a dead body that he, he killed yeah. someone. He makes a bunch of different choices. Uh, that really enhance that scene and they use like probably 30% of what he throws in there, but it doesn't add any time, any extra labor. It's the same setup, but he found a way to make it interesting. Yeah. And so and it gives you options in that room. Right. Exactly. So I would be remiss. We didn't touch on this because I remember we, I think we've been, we've been friends on Facebook probably since that night at trivia when we yeah. hit it off, when you, me and Brad were all out. By the way, shout out to Brad. We wouldn't have known each oh, other yeah, without Brad. Brad, Brad Hague's the god. <laughs> <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, he's like, uh, to quote Seinfeld, in a lot of ways, he's like the nexus of the universe. He um, is. <laughs> but, uh, I love that. <laughs> because, I mean, I, I've said this before, Brad is largely responsible for pushing me to start this show. Mm-hmm. And he, Brad has a real problem sometimes with negative self-talk, as we all do. And and it frustrates me because he is one of the most prolific creatives I've ever known. And so I, I, I try and make sure and say that as much as I can to him directly and in public wherever I can. So just I you say it on mic just to remind him he needs to he needs to listen to this at night before he goes to bed. <laughs> That's right. But it, it was right about that time we were playing trivia. You mentioned you weren't drinking. And I think sobriety was fairly new for you at that point. But it seems like since you've gotten sober. Your, your prolificness has gone up quite a bit and your, your energy, your, your appetite for your, for creativity. I feel like I've seen you write that on Instagram and other places. And so I, I'm curious, first of all, what ultimately led you to make the leap in, into sobriety? I know we had talked about you had an injury with your foot and that started you down the exercise path. And then how's it been going? Well, um, 
there are a couple of factors that ultimately led to the decision to finally stop it. I tried to get sober before two different times, went to two different rehab facilities um, and one outpatient center. And I just would slip back into it because I figured like, well, I had this sense that nobody wanted to work with me and nobody wanted to, you know, be around me. And the only people who, or the people who thankfully dissuaded me of that notion were the real nerds. Because when I came back to Colorado after other attempts to get sober, they welcomed me back with an open hug. Cause I, I, my first episode with them was in 2013 oh, wow. and I did more for them in 2014, but I was in a guest capacity. And when Ryan had Kellen, I was a guest host for the four weeks when he was on paternity leave. So when I, when I got back to Colorado in late 2015, uh, they, they welcomed me back with open arms. And from 2016 to 2018, I was continuing to drink and in heavier proportions nightly. Um, how, was, how bad did it get, Zach? I mean, and you don't have to go into excruciating detail here, but how bad was it I have, for you? I have no problem explaining the details. Um, it was um, at the worst, it would be a fifth of cheap whiskey because it was all I could afford. Or vodka, depending on what I wanted that night. And no less than three 16-ounce beers, um, just slamming them down. And then occasionally, I'd up that ante with additional shooters of Fireball or mm. Smirnoff flavoring. And then when I was moving over to beer, I was drinking a full six-pack of 16-ounce Coors a night with five shooters of Fireball. Okay. This is nightly. This is... I don't know how much sugar passing through your system. Yeah. That was at its worst when my health was involved. And when I was younger, I was slamming down even more. I got to a point where. Were you like, were you blacking out every night? No, my blackout period was prior to me coming back home, but uh, there were blackout periods. And I think that a big part of it and how I began managing it was that I knew I'd have to go to work the next day. Mm. And so I was like stopping at a certain point, but I got to a point where alcoholics most go to where you start feeling tremors and the, the DTs. I physically needed to drink. It wasn't just an emotional and mental crippling. It was a physical crippling. Yeah. And when you starting to, when I started to work out, I learned that my body would be sore from not just working out, but also drinking. And I looked at my entire surroundings and I was not happy with how everything had turned out. I had been podcasting consistently with the real nerds for two years now at that point. So it was no longer a guest capacity. I was now a full host, but I was still drinking either before or after the shows. So there are early shows where you can listen to me and I very much slurring my speech. Mm. And I was not happy with it. And a lot of the physical, uh, the physical issues that came with it really made me very tired, very agitated. I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't being kind to other people around me. I was an utter jerk and was very self-absorbed and not really looking at the world around me. And not to make this political, but we were in a fucking hell hole for four years <laughs> with, with a certain gentleman that I, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to go into full rant mode here, but there was a lot of factors in 2018 that led me to, okay, I'm tired of the way I'm behaving and I'm tired of what I'm seeing around me. No, nothing else is going to change around me, but I can change my shit. And the real final kicker, John, the real final kicker, when we were at 
Denver Pop Culture Con in 2018 with the Real Nerds, <clears throat> I was tasked with my first moderation of panels. Mm. And I was still drinking at this at this particular stage, but this is like June of 2018. Mm-hmm. I moderated a panel with um, Tony Medina, the guy who wrote I Am Alfonso Jones, which is an amazing graphic novel about the current Black Lives Matter movement and uh, Death by Police Brutality, which is an essential thing to teach in graphic novel form. But the other one was K.J. Appa from Archie's, the, our, the Riverdale show. Mm-hmm. And that was in the main hall. And the only reason that I accepted it was because there was no interest by the other groups, but also I was just like, well, I could knock out a couple episodes of Riverdale and get a sense for it. And I watched it. It's fine. It's Twin Peaks for teenagers. <laughs> um, and so I got on that stage, and I have a picture of it that I'll, I'll, I'll show it to you later, but uh, I'll have to pull it up. But I was very overweight. I had the comic book guy look. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and I was chewing gum because I was nervous and my heart was racing and I got up on stage and I do my little spiel. and I tried to get right to him and I asked like a couple leading questions. And then we had the, all the teenagers coming up and asking their questions. I didn't realize this until watching a video of myself afterwards, but um, you can hear me chewing gum in the mic. Oh, geez. You can, you can hear me doing that. And I was a little too snarky and a little bit too up my own ass because I thought I was better than this guy. <laughs> and um, This, this uh, guy when, who's on TV? Yeah, and I was like, well, it's, you know, like, to my mind, it was like, he's on CW television, he's jack <laughs> shit, which that is not a way I would think today. I'd be like, dude, he's a working actor, good for fucking him, you know, yeah. like, shit. Um, but when a question came up about a dog's, jur- or a dog's journey or a dog's purpose, dog's purpose was it, I knew that that movie had been undergoing controversy because of the way the animals were treated. And all I said was, after that question came up, I crossed my legs and I went, this is the question I've been waiting to hear. Oh, God. <laughs> I made a bit of a snarky comment. I think he took it in stride. But, like, I don't think I did anything super egregious, but I was self-aware of it. And when we got off the stage, he darted right for the door. He had been at that convention all weekend. So I'm assuming it was just, you know, he's tired. He wants to get the fuck out. But I'm sure my behavior didn't help that situation. His handlers turned around to me and went, thank you. And then they just <laughs> darted. So I don't, I don't, I still don't know what the full gauge on that was. But when I saw back comments from people about like, oh, KJ's suffering this fool and all that shit. Never read the comment section, guys, unless you want to change your life, I guess, because it did help me realize, like, all right, if you're going to do this again, don't be fucking drinking the night before and certainly don't be, you know, like this up your own ass. And so a lot of my behavior change stemmed from that. The last night that I drank was Brad's birthday. Huh. When I went to go see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, Turtles in Time at the Bug for his birthday. Oh, yeah. The, there's a photo that I use as my, uh, whenever I have a celebration and I do a before and after it's that night with Brad and I getting a picture together. That was my last night of drinking. I had a beer at the place where Stella's used or place where um, the Italian joint used to be across from the bug. You know, which one I'm talking about. I think so. Um, Yeah. But I had a beer there and then that was it. I took an Uber home. I listened to Tarzan boy, (laughs) which is in the soundtrack to (laughs) Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles three. And is now uh, jungle boys entrance music in AEW all elite wrestling. So, really? No oh, shit. <laughs> how do you how do you enter in on that music knowing that what the video is? <laughs> Dude, he's Jungle Boy. Okay, it also used to be a Listerine commercial. I mean, come on. 
So that is fair. That is fair. I always remembered it from the VHS opening. Like they had like a preview for like now available on home video and you're like, oh, 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 oh. But yeah, that was my last night. And I just started, I kept re- podcasting with real nerds, but I was very quiet about my sobriety for a while. Like I was just like, if it fails again, you know, then I don't want to be, you know, up my own ass. I waited until I started losing weight at a significant in a significant way to show my progress. And the amount of love that I received for that when I posted that was overwhelming. And I'm not, I don't post this stuff to get attention. A lot of it for me is checking in with myself and I need to see it externalized by me posting about it. And then I can look back on it and go like, you were feeling down on this day, just like you're feeling down today. You got over it, didn't you? So stop it. And I waited until I hit a full year of sobriety before I, announced my sobriety Hmm. but a lot of it came down to john like i was tired of being self-destructive it had really nothing to do with wanting to be creative again it had nothing to do with wanting to be you know like like get my get finally get into a film career that i want to be in it was out of just like i'm tired of this and also i have a nephew he was born months before i uh like he was born in 2017 on november 3rd so between that and july of 2018 I had a lot of time with my nephew still drinking where I was like, he can't do this forever. You you can't. You want to be a part of this kid's life? You're not going to be doing that the entire time. I had a lot of good reasons to stop, but the best reason was that I wanted to stop. Yeah. And that's the only way it's ever going to happen. I mean, that's true of weight loss. That's true of quitting smoking. I, you know, it's been almost two years since I've had any tobacco at all. Uh, which... Oh, good for you. I am still on uh, nicotine vape. That is the one thing I haven't um, left yet. Yeah, um, and that that one, I and I haven't drank any soda since 2017. So uh, I, I mean, I I still drink uh, and I smoke weed, but like I can handle those things. They have not affected my life in in right. a, in a way that that are giving me red flags the way smoking cigarettes was. Yeah, but... and that's actually something I want to bring up. Because that's something I learned along the way is that just because I became sober didn't mean I couldn't interact with people who did drink. I a lot of what I went through, I realized that there's there it's self it's responsive it's your own responsibility, and taking accountability for my own actions is the best in the best way that I can. I'm not perfect, but I try. Yeah. And one thing is acknowledging that like some people can drink or smoke weed and be fine with it. You're not able to. Can you respect that difference? And the answer is I could. I was on Pop Culture Brews with Andrew Sanders. And I was going to bring this up because one of those guys is my neighbor. Yeah, I know. I, he told me about how you guys met. He's like, do you know John Extra, <laughs> John of all traits? And I think you were also just like, do you know Andrew Sanders of Pop Culture Brews? And I'm just like, yes, get in the room, both of you. Do, <laughs> do something. And, and I was going to bring that up because the two of you, yeah, you did the show and they, they brewed you like some tea because most people like on this end, as someone who – you know, hasn't, hasn't, uh, I don't even know how to say this, like hasn't gone sober. Right. I mean, I still, right. yeah. um, yeah. most people really don't give a shit. Like we're, we're happy for those who have gotten sober. And, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but it's like, it's not something where it's like, Hey, why aren't you drinking? Like all accusatorily, which I, I've talked to some people in recovery and they say, that's kind of the fear. Like when you get going mm-hmm. yeah, o- over time, I, um... you realize that most people, reasonable people, just don't really give a shit. It's like, oh, you're not drinking? All right. 
You you learn to stop giving into peer pressure. But you also learn that it's not a necessity for a good time. Yeah. But a lot of it uh, has also had has been me dealing with therapy. A lot of my drinking got kicked off by a traumatic event in my life, but it was a lot of years of trauma on the surface that was boiling beneath the surface and one big event kicked it off. And now when I look back on it, a lot of my my ability to stay clean had to do with me also acknowledging my own mental health and my own limitations. So like I won't allow myself to be disrespected at my day job because of my trauma and thusly keep myself safe and sober. So like, you know, like I don't do film professionally yet and I don't do podcasting professionally yet, but I, I work a day job at a grocery store. And the one thing that I give myself allowance for with the help of my therapist is that yes, that job is there to help pay bills and to fund things like the podcast but it is not there to dominate my life and it's certainly not there to drive me back to where I was before. So if it gets out of line, then I, I pull the stop and I say like, I'm going home for the day. You could deal with this. We could deal with this tomorrow, but you know, like, but those are like when it's, if it's a bad day, I have to manage this one day at a time. I tried AA and it didn't work, but there are ideas in AA that do work that help you mentally process this stuff. And for me, it's like, all right, one, one minute, one second at a time, you are learning how to manage your life without a, without a substance to put you at ease. Like, I'll tell you, like, you talked about the length of our, of the podcast on Ballyhoo, um, in a, in a, in a, in a kind way. Yeah. And, um, and actually one of my favorite letters I've ever received was you messaging me about one, how much that episode meant to you. Yeah. But two, that you understood why they were as long as they were. Because I, I could easily do an hour-long show where I'm like, yeah, the movie's great. Watch it. Shit. And right, it's like, right. no, we have to explain why it's good, et cetera. But also, like, when I'm talking for that length of time with people about this subject and getting their passion out, that's better than any drink I get at the end of the day. Sure. Like, that, that would have been, like, no amount of alcohol takes away that pleasure. Uh, no, and it's the same with finishing a film or writing a new film or getting a new episode out. Like those have become my high. And now my job has become balancing that with a social life so that my work doesn't consume me because that can also be a way I go back to drinking. Oh, that, that, that can eat you alive. And, and I want to, yeah. I want to touch on something that's really important here. You mentioned you're not a professional filmmaker yet. You're not a professional podcaster yet. Dude, that's bullshit. Okay. That's just business cards. Okay. <laughs> like you, you want to call yourself a professional? Get a fucking business card that says you're a professional filmmaker. Okay. Mine's written on cardboard and crayon with the letters backwards. <laughs> that's an aesthetic choice, Zach. And I'm not going yeah, to dispute you on that. That's my style. How dare you? How dare you harp on my style? I'll, I'll never impugn your own style. Um, <laughs> what, what I would say is you are creating things and seeing them through completion. Mm. And not everyone can do that. Uh, you know, you're, you're making these films, but why? Right? And so before mm. you answer that, it's clearly not for financial gain. You don't make, you don't make short films for money. No. Right? You, <laughs> you, you, you don't create money on short films. <laughs> you don't create four hour podcasts for money. You know, no. th- these are not things, but what you were creating is a professional product. And what you're doing, essentially, if you want to look at it this way is, all you're doing is creating a bunch of proof of concept. And so this, this is John of all trades. You know, I, I ostensibly talk to people about 
what they do for a living. And sometimes it's a side hustle and sometimes it's just for fun and sometimes for passion. Right. But the point is you're creating these things and I myself am a podcast producer. Like in addition to this show, there are five others that I produce right? Uh, to, to one extent or another. And people looked at what I created and they go, oh, you seem like you know how to do this. And so you say yet. I really like the inclusion of the word yet. Also, yet great comedy word. Uh, <laughs> similar to uh, like that one word can change anything the same way yeah. an almost can. And the same way and again can. Yeah. And I think of again in particular, I always think of Dumb and Dumber when I think of that. It's like, how was your day, Lloyd? Not bad. Fell off the jetway again. <laughs> and, and you go, <laughs> right? And so like that again is doing so much work in that joke. Yeah. It is. Um, it's, it, and already you know that Lloyd is a, Lloyd is in a perpetual state of, of hell. <laughs> right. Uh, of, of self-inflicted wounds. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, to your point, the word yet is really important here because there is belief there. E- even if no one has paid you money for these services yet, they will. Yeah. And, and uh, can I tell you something, though? Even as I say the yet, because there is still obviously the desire to be paid for what I do with that respect. Oh, everyone wants to get paid for doing Wayne's World. Right. Exactly. But yeah. so that let's 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 throw that note into the garbage for a second. Let's just throw it into the garbage for a second. With short films, I find it very hard at times to communicate the way I feel about the world, either because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or I don't want to give off the wrong impression. And so I feel like short films can help clarify that. I I genuinely, as a person, don't don't I desire to never see anybody feel hurt or sad or disappointed. And if anything, I look at somebody who's sad and I'm like, why are you sad? You should be happy. And like, and, but I don't force it down. I understand everybody has problems and I do my best to be there if somebody needs to talk. Um, I'm not perfect at it, but I do my best. And I found that short films or films in general or writing is just the best way I have to quantify my viewpoint of the world in a way that isn't a rant on YouTube or a rant on Facebook or anything like that. Cause I don't think that helps with Ballyhoo there's a feeling of wanting to bridge a gap between audiences that may not look to the films of the past and whatnot. But, you know, I looked at it this way when I began the show, it was one, it was a, it was trying to find a way to do Shamley, but with other movies, but also tackle other directors. And over the course of time, it ended up becoming like, you know, it'd be cool to have this for my nephew years later, if he was wanting to learn more about film, not to say that I'm an expert and I'm certainly not like, I'm not a professor scholar or like, I didn't get a degree from USC, et cetera, but I know enough to be a conduit. And if I can provide something like that for him or for people like him, that would be a great thing to leave behind. And I'll spend all the money I have to in the world to keep that train going for as long as it's going to go. Because I want to share my love of it with other people. And that's why I have a guest on each week. It's why I don't have like a consistent co-host. Yeah, It's because... I want to hear what you guys like about these films too, because one, I want to make sure I'm not alone, but two, I like hearing other people find the joy in these films in a world where the prevailing school of thought is, is that, well, a young kid can't get into black and white movies, but the truth is, is that they can and they will, because a good story will always transcend time or a good actor will always transcend time. 
People are getting into Cary Grant now. In what world is Cary Grant making a complete and utter resurgence? I, I know that the wonderful Adam Roach is doing what he's doing with Secret History of Hollywood, and I know Ryan loves Cary Grant as well, but like the surge around Grant has been amazing in the last two years, where I'm just like, it's insane. It's yeah. amazing and insane, and I love it. And so, like, for me, it's about doing it because I want to do it. And also, this is stuff I wish I had as a kid. I wish I had somebody talking for three hours about Jack Benny movies. That's why I'm trying to write a book about Jack Benny's film career, because I'm just like, nobody else is, nobody else is going to do it, <laughs> and I wish I had that book when I was 10. Yeah. That would have been amazing to have. And so for me, it's about, I love these things way too much to not try and do my own spin on it, whether, regardless of how it comes out. There are plenty of times when I, I'm unsure of how an episode came out, but ultimately I got it out there. I love the guests work on it. I love listening back to it. And hopefully it reaches somebody who's wanting to learn and also understand that people who are fans of old Hollywood are not a fan of old values. That's the key difference. You don't have to be a fan of golden age Hollywood and also be a fan of racism and sexism. <laughs> you know, like that, yeah. that bridge needs to be dismantled. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't have to love Mickey Rooney in breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, <sighs> so, you know, <laughs> way to bring up a recent, <laughs> that, totally. that, when I, I went through the film twice preparing for it. Cause I tried to, I go through once on its right. own, one with the commentary and stuff. And sometimes for just enjoyment. That one, anytime he popped up on screen, the, like the, you can't see this on the podcast, folks, but I would be banging my head yeah. across the counter. <laughs> well, dude, I'll, I'll tell you what. Ever done it. So I, I would love to do it again if you'll have me because yes, we, absolutely. So we did WC Fields. We need to do a George Burns Gracie Allen one. I agree. Yeah, uh, but we got. Uh, I, I already gave you the title. Yeah, I yeah. think you're gonna love it when you watch it. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, if you haven't done this movie yet, uh, I will do this one with you if you'd like, uh, but it's Some Like It Hot. I have not done Some Like It Hot yet. I love Some Like It Hot. So do I. It's, we, we did, um, we did The Apartment not too long ago. Yeah, no, I, and so, I, I mean, I, The Apartment is brilliant, and that's Billy Wilder too, but Some, yeah. some Like It Hot has just a much more antic sensibility. It uh, is. It's, um, you can notice that it's actually a division point between the two. Right. Like, it's, one motive Wilder versus the other one. It's really interesting. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's save that for your show. But yeah, for, absolutely. But for now, I could talk to you for a month of Sundays, Zach. But yeah. for now, we got to wrap up. Um, where can people find you? Uh, anything you want to plug? The floor is yours. As John alluded to, I am on the Real Nerds podcast as a regular contributor each and every week. Me, Almighty Podlord Brad Haig, and uh, Ryan Frost and Corinne Westerman and I. Uh, get together and talk about the new release of the week as we speak tonight. Today, I'm after this is done, I'm going right over to see Venom Let There Be Carnage and uh, we'll review that tonight. I do the show Yesteryear Valley Who Review, it's R E V U E, uh, where we break down a film pre 1968 and talk about the lessons you can learn from it that are still carried into films today, talk about the historical context of the piece. And also have fun with it. Uh, some good episodes to go back to. We did one on the Blob and Gajira. That's a really good example of just getting you into the mode of it. The It's a Gift episode that I did with John is a very wonderful deep dive into a comedian that I don't think a lot of people outwardly express love for. Uh, I see it in certain circles, but like I wish he had a bigger exposure. Another one that I love doing is covering Jack Benny's film career. There are three episodes on that that run anywhere from... 
two hours and 30 minutes to three hours and 40 minutes. So it's, it, there's, there's a lot of stuff to cover. And I'm also right now guest hosting for the Punk Rock Horror Podcast while one of their main hosts is on paternity leave. And I have just uh, signed on to help them with editing their video content because I love my horror films. I love my horror chatter. I think I can, I'm hopefully I can help them out. I've done short films. Leather Brown is available now on Risa Scott's Vimeo page. I'm going to be developing a YouTube page for myself here very soon. So I'll give John that info whenever it comes out. Heavy Hangs the Sky is the last one we just shot. Uh, Hayden Winston wrote it. Uh, same writer as Leather Brown. One of the best writers I've ever worked with. Risa Scott stars in it along with Deborah Walker, Matthew Murbeck, and Aaron Mullane. Uh, and uh, that one will be hopefully hitting festivals um, by the end of the year. Um, so look out for that. Additionally, I can be found on Twitter at Zach Real Nerd, R-E-E-L, at Ballyhoo Review, and on Instagram at Real Nerd Zach, and at Ballyhoo Review Pod. So I'm everywhere, folks. If you want to get a hold of me, <laughs> even if you want to just talk about your day and whatnot, I'm down for it. You know, <laughs> You're going to make this page look all spammy now. Um, with all those links. Um, oh, wait, I also have my own line of shampoo. Jesus Christ, <laughs> shut up, Jack. <laughs> um, those are all available on the companion blog piece that's on johnofalltrades.us, J-O-N of alltrades.us. Also, in these show notes, so if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Audible, and anywhere else you really get your pods, you can find me there. Zach, I uh, really appreciate your candor. Really appreciate just, man, your entire sensibility. I'm glad that Brad helped us get together, and mm-hmm. I look forward to whatever we create together in the future. So I wish you continued success, my man. I'm excited. And that'll do it for episode 307 of the John of All Trades podcast with Zach Eastman of The Real Nerds, The Shamley Silhouette of the Yesteryear Valley Who Review. What a great guy. I love talking with Zach. I'm going to go do his show again here at some point in the future. Can't wait to do that. Be sure to check out all his work. He just gave you all the links. John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. In all manner of traditional PR, whether that's earned media, ghost writing, presentation training, stakeholder outreach, or whatever communications needs your organization has. I also am a podcast producer. I have six shows I'm currently producing. I'm adding more. There's another one coming on very soon that I'm really super excited about. So if you want to work with me, hit me up. J-O-N at D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. That's John at Delta Echo Foxtrot Tango C-O-M dot U-S. Our sponsor is 4Degrees. Number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, 4Degrees can help you do it better. If you're building a website, running a campaign, social media marketing, online advertising, 4Degrees wins awards for what they do because they reach people where they are with an effective message. Number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Stay with me on social. The handle is J-O-A-T pod across platform. That is Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Episode previews go up on Facebook only. That's on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. I am out of here for this week. What a great show. I got another one lined up for you next week. Cannot wait to hear you again. And until I do, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.